0: negativity is to the energetic part of our world, what pollution is to the material part of our world. And of course, you and I being people who want pristine planet, it goes without saying then that the inner work is just as important, right?
1: Welcome to
0: 101 Ways to Save the Planet, inspired conversations of hope and optimism about the future,
1: hosted by Madeline and Bonnie, two sisters passionate about creating a greener tomorrow by demonstrating all that is possible today.
0: All right, so today we're going to be discussing A New Earth by Eckhart Tull. Right,
1: Bon? I'm so excited for our first book club episode and this book especially. I know that we are coming to you the day after a very historic election. We don't know what the outcome of that is, but I think that a lot of the tools and uh, philosophies discussed in this book will be very helpful in navigating just a way forward, no matter uh, what reality we are working with right now. Exactly. Speaking of those tools, let's just dive right
0: into to some of your favorites, bonds. What were sure. some of your Well, you...
1: I thought we could talk about why this is so relevant right now and how the tools discussed are sort of a result, I guess, of The timeliness of this. I think that, you know, there's a lot of different ways that this book can help you. It helps you with confronting emotions. It helps you with forgiving yourself again and again and again, and allowing for grace when things are difficult. Um, It helps let go of the concept of judgment, of something being good or bad. And I think that given the divisiveness our country has been faced with recently, we need a different way forward and this can certainly help with that. And then, you know, what we love is as planetary focused and kind of um, environmental advocates wanting to live in harmony with nature is how this book helps us to really recognize the inherent connection that we have not only to each other, but to anything that lives, Um, which is so beautiful. It's been really foundational to my faith. So we, our goal is that through us talking about some of these concepts, we're not telling you that this is right or wrong. and You know, you should believe this. It's all up to you. And of course, we hope that you have read the book or will read the book. But because it helped us, our hope is that us talking about it, perhaps it could help you.
0: Yes, precisely. And I loved what you just said of that inherent connection that we all share as beings on this planet, because the, the book really drills down about being beingness and Mm -hmm. not necessarily how to be but that we are being just as much as we are doers we are beers and and that that is what has been found to be in an imbalance in our current day society is that the focus is so heavily laid upon the doing in our life and not in the being and there's this you know huge awakening happening right now a big push back to a culture of of being which i also like to call a culture of we rather than a culture of me because innate in that beingness is our connection to everyone and everything and
1: yes i mean there's so much i'm i'm like scrolling over my notes frantically because there are so many ways in the book that Eckhart Tolle is able to put this concept so crystallizingly (laughs) so I think my big comment here is that a a realization and I don't even want to see a realization because it's sort of an inner knowing that I felt for a long time that came to the surface while I was reading is how love requires connection and fear requires separateness in order to be afraid you have to totally disregard the fact that you are connected to a person or a creature, or a circumstance. And therefore, you cannot act with it, because you're separate from it. And that is why fear is the opposite of love. Mm. Because it's disconnection versus connection. And then to be in love is to recognize that you are connected to that person, that situation, or that life form, whatever form it is taking. I think that that beingness is this concept that's really hard to wrap your brain around it because it's not meant to be thought about. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. meant to just simply be aware of, and so that's <laughs> something that. It's like hard to kind of go back and forth with. But you know, in the last part of the book, especially, he talks about how inner alignment is so important before every action you do, and you can think about that at like plugging in and connection again, before mm-hmm. you make a decision so that whatever circumstance you're faced with, you are in connection and love before you go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote says when the basis for your actions is inner alignment with the present moment, your actions become empowered by the intelligence of life itself. I love that. It's the whole reason that I meditate every single morning. It is that like wraps it all
0: up and you know, it goes without saying that this book is really touting the benefits of meditation as well. And that, that meditation practice is a way to simply be for any amount of moments in your day. Um, And a formal practice of sitting, you know, still and witnessing the moment and your breath and all of that is transferable Then the consciousness that you're building within that it stacks up and then it becomes this thing, this, this way that you can be this thing you can stand upon in the moving moments of your life, which can, if you don't have that built up, the movement of the life can sweep you up into it. And you become so identified and immersed in form in what that person said in what, you know, you're just in the thoughts, you're in the forms. And there's this when you identify with form, you, you take the world personally. And any driver that does something that's like rude can set you off into this emotional current of negativity. And one of the things I love that he says in the book is that negativity is to the energetic part of our world what pollution is to the matter, material part of our world. And of course, you and I being people who want pristine planet it goes without saying then that the inner work is just as important right and as a meditation teacher i always talk about the principle so how it works right is as above so below so the energy that's how it comes in right whatever above might be higher consciousness higher divinity however you want to express it god you can use lots of different words the universe um but as above so below so it comes from that aboveness to below, to the form world, and then as within, so without. So it goes in that order, goes from within to without. So if we have all this pollution in negativity uh, inside of ourselves, if we're, you know, ruminating on what that driver did to me, or what my husband said to me, or what my, you know, this person might do in the future, you know, all of these ways that we can kind of pollute our inner environment with identification with form is the way Eckhart Tolle puts it. But then I love playing with this concept because, okay, so then it makes us responsible to the pollution because I don't know about you, Bon, but I have negative thoughts still. I have negativity still in my life right now. I'm feeling pretty good. So like there's not much inner pollution. But there's definitely moments where I get activated and things build and, and that like sort of toxicity, emotional toxicity or negativity is reflected in the toxicity of our planet. And that's what I love that Eckhart totally brings in this book. He brings such a beautiful clarity of how these two worlds that are really the same thing, it's just like the yin and the yang together, how they really reflect each other how are we going to say like no more wars if we have an internal war happening every day where we're fighting ourselves and we're you know degrading ourselves and thinking we're not good enough or anything like that so which then you know it really brings it into this like like what what really matters to us and how can we bring that into our inner life and the ways that we choose to harbor emotions and thoughts and energies inside of ourselves, are we harboring pollution or are we harboring life-affirming, love-affirming, connection-affirming positions within ourselves?
1: One thing I want to just say here for anyone who might be thinking, oh gosh, I think negative thoughts all the time. Oh, I'm so polluted. Oh gosh. like And then it's so hard to stop even when you try to you know have those reactive thoughts or those resentments or those judgments or whatever the negativity that continues to arise remember that every moment that you recognize that you're having that thought that's it that's all it is it's just that recognition i'm having this thought that opens up all these different options for dealing with a situation or or even to retell a story that's maybe creating those thoughts and that's what they call the the creativity and the intelligence of life right is all of those other options that you have at your disposal in a moment and um so it's you know be careful not to judge yourself for having negative thoughts because it's it's part of the beautiful humanity that we have that drives our continued learning and you know in those moments you can also recognize that you have another option. And um, meditation certainly helps with that. And during meditation, we can do the same thing, right? We can be meditating and think like, oh, and then suddenly like, oh gosh, I have that deadline. Oh my gosh, did I email that person back? Oh no. Like they, their response to me was sort of short. Are they mad at me? And like, and then suddenly you're back into consciousness. And that moment, again, that's it. That is meditation is, is when you recognize it. Even if you have to do it, 20, 30, 40, 50 times in five minutes when you're meditating, you're slowly getting better with each recognition. So I just want to say that because I know people can be hard on themselves.
0: I love that. And and you can even spend the whole five, 10 minutes of your meditation thinking as long as you realize at the end, like, wow, I was thinking that whole time. Exactly. That's awareness. You know what I mean? And I love that you're bringing this up, Bonnie, because it's so relatable. And the thing about energy, it can change like that we are very used to and and in relationship to the physical world and material world and things take longer in a material world because it's denser which is why we can see it and feel it and taste it and touch it because it's more dense and so it's more condensed but energy you know thoughts are more like energy because they're that elusive you can't really see or hear or taste or touch it but you experience you have an experience of it right And energy can change like that. So like the moment you're talking about is that awareness. And as soon as you're like, oh, I'm full of negative thoughts, like you're you change it in that moment that you're aware. However, it can change right back if you continue to ruminate, like you just said of judging yourself. So in that moment is the option like. Do you use that moment to lift yourself up or do you use that moment to put yourself down? And both of those options are available to us. Now, which one happens most often will be the most practiced reaction. And so if, but that's why we meditate is to, it's that's why we call it a yoga practice because it's about practicing, choosing the high of us, choosing the lifted of us. And this book is talking about I just want to go back to the very beginning of the book and how he talks about flowers.
1: I love this Mm -hmm. analogy. I loved that so much. Uh,
0: So yeah, in the very beginning of the book, he mentions how there was a time on our planet where there really weren't flowers. The conditions were too harsh for something as delicate and beautiful and sort of fleeting as a flower to even exist. And then the conditions started to level out in a way that like the first flower came to be but that it wasn't like there was fields of flowers all of a sudden there was just one and then you know maybe a hundred years later there was another one you know and then the conditions continued to harmonize and all of a sudden there was this mass awakening you could say of the flower consciousness on the planet to be like fields of wildflowers and meadows and everywhere you know and then fruits came to be and all of this And so then he likens this to human consciousness and to the birth of a new consciousness inside of us as humans, that is the push that we're in right now. And you can feel the like contractions in the world these days that are the midwifing of this new consciousness. And I love that he talks about how, you know, thousands of years ago, there was the conditions were starting to ripen and there was... These teachers, Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu and these highly elevated, evolved conscious beings that were like flowers just popping up here and there every couple hundred thousands of years, but that now the conditions are ripening for a mass conscious awakening. And if you are listening to this podcast and if you're reading this book, then you most likely are on that trajectory. But it's a choice, right? It's still that free will of a choice and if we choose to be part of that, if we choose to flower ourselves, if you will. And the delicateness of a flower is such a beautiful example of it because it's not about making its mark on the world in a way of like the flower is going to stay forever and create this lasting change. But
1: it is the flower's because I mean,
0: succeed
1: over all other flowers and be the best flower Right. It's not about
0: that. It's about the beingness of the flower. And if and the flower really is like this beautiful example of a moment because, you know, it's not going to last. Flowers are fleeting. They don't stay very long. They die. And, but they smell like the, the whole experience
1: of a flower is love and joy. And beauty for beauty's sake. I think I, I read another book called On Beauty and Being Just, and it talks a lot about how one of the markers of beauty is it doesn't like serve a purpose except for just make us stop and appreciate it. And so the thing about the flower too, is that it is, like I said, it's not trying to be the most successful flower. It's not trying to do anything. It just is, and it becomes, and then it surrenders, and then it serves its own, own other purpose and its death you know, so it's such an example for us. And the other thing that happens in the Bible so often with flowers, but also with nature is it is used to explain life to us. You know, God uses nature as a metaphor for what he's trying to teach us. And so I think that's so powerful, such a powerful concept. And again, why we're like doing the work that we do and why it's so important to be in harmony with nature, because not only are we all connected, but because that is where our salvation comes from and are learning about ourselves. And on the same path, the second thing that this made me think of is how he talks about any seed or chick in an egg or in utero fetus is not going to emerge into the world until it's ready. And it's not like the seed or even the chick or the baby Decides. Okay, hmm, is now okay? No. You know what? I'm gonna go tomorrow. It just goes because it is in complete alignment with life, and so it knows it has that kind of, you know, universal intelligence to emerge into the world at the exact moment that it is meant to. And I thought that was really cool because it reminds you, like, I'm in the state of my life right now. Or sometimes I can be judgmental and I can feel like I'm not, you know achieving all of the things that people around me are achieving I'm not having babies I'm not married I'm not you know I don't have own my own house whatever whatever those markers are but I think that it's so important to remember for all of us no matter where you are because we can all do this no matter what stage of life we're at that you are emerging into the world exactly when you're meant to and you are going through you know whatever you're going through exactly when you're meant to. And I think that I just thought like the the metaphors with nature really helped me to clarify some of those concepts that I've always known, but didn't, couldn't put words to.
0: This is reminding me of our conversation with Jade. And when he talks about those experiences that you feel more than you can explain yeah. or even see. Yeah. And that the use of nature helps us to understand that because, you know, me talking about the experience of smelling a rose, I'm sure I could be very poetic and like come up with some words that could strike some chords, but really like the experience of smelling a rose in, is in the experience of smelling a rose. It's not in the words used to point at it. And I think that so often that's what can, become misconstrued in Jesus's teachings is that he is doing his best to explain the scent of a rose to people to so many people who have never smelled a rose and don't know what that's about and they're focusing so much on on his fingers sort of pointing to that experience that you can't put into words but you can point towards it and there there became this like fascination with the fingers rather
1: than what is beyond what I as I'm reading this book you can't help but see then when I'm reading my bible the parallels and i can more clearly recognize and this is something that i've always struggled with is the tendency for christian authorities to encourage separation versus connection and I just know in my heart that whenever that is happening, whenever a even an authority figure in my faith is is encouraging separation or saying we are better than them or this is right and this is wrong, that is wrong or that is not the truth. <laughs> I, <should say. laughs> I think that uh, there's another quote in the book where he says, if you believe only your religion is only your religion is the truth then you're using it in service to the ego because you're using it just to kind of say, I'm right. You're wrong. You know, I'm better than you. And anytime you're doing that, that is not in service to the truth. I had read that in the book and then I was reading the Bible later. And there was this quote in Matthew 15 verse eight through nine that says, these people honor me with their lips talking about the Pharisees, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And I thought that was like, it stuck out to me because it was like, yeah, this is him pointing out that these people who are using, you know, God to separate themselves from others or, you know, or put themselves up above other people or create rules, which by their very nature, create right and wrong and thus create separation, then, you know, that is not me. That's not what I'm about. And I think that the more I dig into Christianity through this lens, the more it starts to make sense to me and the less of these issues that I've kind of struggled with in that faith stick around. I wanted to get into the part where he talks about parenting, because I think
0: that that's very valuable for whoever you are in the world, because even if you don't have children, we're all still parenting ourselves, our own inner child, you know, and you probably still have some influence on some children in your life, whether it's a moment or, you know, nieces and nephews or something like that.
1: And he talks about relationship. I mean, a lot of this can apply to any relationship with it, with a child or with another. I mean, he talks about not over identifying with your role as a mother or father, which can happen very often, but that can equally apply to not overly identifying with your role as a wife or a daughter or whatever it might be, because the essence of who you are isn't that role,
0: right? And not to mention, you know, we all have parents. So even if they're not around anymore, we've all come from someone, right? So what I love about that section is that he really kind of puts it all, all like all the eggs back in your basket. It's how it felt to me, where it's not this idea of like this arm wrestle of trying to get like say I'm a child who struggles with a parent's expectations of what I need to do reading this book would make me realize oh they're trying to you know live vicariously through me or they're harboring unconscious beliefs that I need to act in a certain way because of what they sacrificed for me or because you know that's who we are or whatever those expectations might be and now what I love about it is he says if you if you notice that your parents are behaving unconsciously or in the ego, you don't go up to your parents and say, like, you're in the ego, because that's only going to rise more defensiveness and create sort of more of a separation between what's where the truth and where they are and all of that. But the the really powerful thing he says is like, typically, just an awareness, just having awareness that your parents are acting in ego is enough to start dissolving their ego. So you can just kind of witness them or whether it's yourself or you're the child witnessing or the person witnessing that that someone is having an expectation of you that you did never agreed on to, into, you don't have to sort of engage in, in a dialogue about it. You can just be aware. And I think this is where I got tripped up a lot in the beginning of my, what I would call like awakening journey. I read this book for the first time when I was 23, 24. Mm. And, And I remember I would do that. I would say things like you're being so unconscious or I'd like someone would start to be defensive. And I'd be like, why are you being so defensive? And that would just ignite them even more. Cause the thing is like truth, it has a vibration. Like, so people can feel the truth of it, but it can feel so vulnerable and it can feel so exposing that it ha- it does not create the effect you might want of like someone being like, you're right. I am being defensive. I'm going to put all this down and just work on peace. Like no, people don't do that. <laughs> They're just like, what? Because you're being a b You know what I mean? And 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 I did that a decent amount in my younger, you know,
1: years of being on this path, if you will. Like I might have been on the receiving end of some of that. <laughs> yeah. And
0: it's not helpful, but those words were so helpful for me to rehear because I think I did not typically, I didn't absorb them as well
1: last time, but that you can just be aware. I think that This really helps me because it can be so easy, especially when you're living with people you love who drive you a little crazy sometimes.
0: Everybody can relate.
1: Whenever I notice resentment building up, it's because I'm telling myself a story that something is happening to me that shouldn't be. You know, the way this person is acting towards me, they shouldn't be doing that. And this is unfair. And, you know, what all those stories that you tell yourself about a situation where instead of just stepping back and realizing this is happening and it doesn't have to do with me or with them, we're, you know, it's more about the ego. And then that way you can really release a lot of that resentment. And it's powerful. Otherwise, It's powerful because otherwise it'll just build and resentment I think is the worst enemy to any relationship, whether it's with a parent and child or with a loved one or with a family member, you know, you want to release that as often as you can. And this is a way to do that. It just builds that
0: negativity, that toxicity, you know, emotional toxicity and the person, whether you say anything, they can, and everyone can feel it. If you're resenting someone, then they're going to just continue to harden probably in that position or create like defensive mechanisms against it. And there's such a compassion that comes from just being aware that, oh, this person is having an unconscious moment and that's all it is. And haven't I had unconscious moments before and wouldn't it have been nice to just be witnessed as I am, without needing to change, without being told I'm wrong, without you know, wouldn't it have been nice to just be in whatever state I'm in and be witnessed true in truth and in love? That isn't to say that if you if there's a toxic relationship that you should just stay and watch. Like you can be witness it and back away, you know, and remove yourself from the situation. But for most relationships that aren't in that harmful zone, you know, you can just witness. And I and I gotta tell you, Von, like during this political upheaval of our country right now, I've been really practicing this not only in my personal relationship with my fiance. Him and I are so simpatico on the way we live our lives and our values, and not totally seeing eye to eye on policy and politics. And it has been, I've taken it very personally. I have to say, i felt very attached to my beliefs and to the way that I think things need to be done. I think a lot of people can relate to this right now. And, it, and I literally, for the first time this summer, I looked in the eyes of the man that I love and it was so uncomfortable and it was so hard to feel that. And it felt so permanent. Like there's no way I can ever get over this kind of a thing. And, and it's so not helpful, right? Cause it's like that split, that divide, that pushing away. All of a sudden he felt like we were right next to each other, but he felt like he was worlds away from me. I couldn't reach him. There was no like understanding happening on either sides and it was just heated and tension building. And I've been putting this into practice within that space of, you know, just letting him speak, asking questions and letting him talk. And a lot of it, I won't agree with. And a lot of it will be sparking little sparks inside of me. Like that's wrong, or this is the truth, or this is, you know, and I'm just like, you know, breathing that in and out and still listening and being curious to his side. And it's been such a practice and so helpful in our relationship. And, and not only in the personal relationship, but when I'm screening and scanning on social media, his family is on one side, my family and friends are mainly on the other side, if you will. And so I'm seeing a very even distribution of thought. And there's just like this practice that I'm attempting, which is not always easy, but there's this practice that I've been bringing in of like conscious awareness in that space, you know, because it's a lot of unconsciousness in there just resharing words that aren't even true or whatever is happening. And it's all like emotional reactivity. But if if we can just practice like consciously engaging in social media too and doing it from a place of like, not that person is wrong or bad or being defensive or judging them, but just witnessing them in their moment that they're in right now. Knowing like, haven't I had
1: a moment like that too? Exactly. I think compassion is... It It is what it is all about right now. And it starts with being willing to be uncomfortable and witnessing when you're uncomfortable. You know, that's when we have that tendency to want to get swept up in some story, you know, that'll justify or make us more comfortable instead of just seeing it for what it is or seeing someone else be uncomfortable, which can also cause us to react and sometimes want to mollify or just have some sort of tension. And so I think that sitting in discomfort, witnessing it is a is really great starting point for having compassion for people, because it keeps you from reacting when you disagree with somebody's point of view. So I hope that we can all remember that. And I just want to mention, you know, I d- talked about reading this book and then reading the Bible. One thing I also did was read this book and watch for my birthday, the entire um, Lord of the Rings extended edition over the course of a week. And oh gosh, there's so much beautiful, probably biblical allegory when Tolkien wrote this, but really because it's based in this universal truth, it applies so much to what was in this book. And so I want to bring up a few moments. Number one is this moment after Frodo leaves the cave, and I can't remember the spider's name, but the giant spider that tried to kill him. He, and what's his name? Smeagol was the one who lured him in there and tried to let the spider kill him so he could take the ring back and so he gets out of his cave and he gets away from the the spider and then here comes Smeagol or Gollum to take the ring jumps out of nowhere and is attacking him and then Frodo gets the better of him and he's like choking him and he has you know he's like about to kill him and then Smeagol's like it wasn't me it was the precious you know the precious made me do it please don't kill Smeagol and in that moment, Frodo has compassion because what he sees is he's like, this guy is just having an unconscious moment and hasn't the ring, which I think is kind of this like metaphor for unconsciousness or that human tendency to identify with a thing, you know, the Form haven't I had that same problem with this ring. I mean, at this point, he's been carrying it for so long, he's had his moments of temptation and all, all of this, and he 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 sees it, which is one of the powerful reasons that he's able to Carry be it. the one that can get rid of it is because he can witness when that's happening to him. And so but it also allows him to have compassion for this other soul, who, you know, has had plenty of unconscious moments, obviously. Right. Um, so,
0: One thing that I love about the Smeagol aspect of the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that he plays such an important role. He's like, he's the ring keeper in hiding and in, you know, this place where no one maybe would have ever found it because he kept it so safe and so hidden.
1: Mm.
0: And he kind of sacrificed himself in order to do that. And the only reason he's able to hold it is because he splits himself in two. He becomes two Entities entirely, one who loves and will do anything for the ring, and one who's still himself. And he's only able to do these like grotesque acts because of that split. And then, you know, how important his role actually is, and like what a sacrifice he really made.
1: And can't that be applied to anyone who you might look at and say they're wrong, they're bad, or they're unconscious, or they're doing this thing? What you're not giving credit to, because what they say at the beginning of the story is, then something happened that the ring did not intend, and to me, that's well, the ring had its own intentions, which is the doing, and the greater intelligence of life had its other intentions and what it wanted for the world that kept it, you know, that used Sméagol as sort of the vehicle to to play that out, and so. That can, yeah, that can be a metaphor that can help you have compassion for people who you might judge, people who might have power, who might be doing things that you don't agree with. In the White House. I always challenge myself with this. How can I have compassion for this person? But you can, because you can recognize that there is a larger intelligence and you can have faith in that intelligence that is working through them for the greatest possible good, which I do. The other thing is how um, you were talking about something earlier that made me think of this. And it was something about parenting, um, but basically how the unconsciousness wants darkness and the awareness is like the flashlight. And there's another beautiful scene, one of my favorites in Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf rides out to Faramir and Gandalf has his staff and the the, uh, the crazy dragons and the... Evil dead kings are attacking the horses from above, and Gandalf takes his staff and lights really powerful flashlight, if you will. But it is impenetrable by the forces of darkness. They can't get through it, so they back away, and so he uses that light to drive them away. And we see this metaphor in so many stories of. You know, as soon as you turn on the light, that's when the boogeyman goes away. And so it's like to remember that—that that just with the light is how we chase away that that unconsciousness that can otherwise overwhelm us. It's such those movies. Show,
0: funny, I've been actually going through it too in a different way because I remember you and Grace always loved that that trilogy in the books and everything and. Watching it, for me, always made me white-knuckled and, like, full of anxiety because it's just so intense all the time. Like, there's always a huge thing of orcs coming at them or, like, these impossible-seeming things that they have to get through with just, like, you know, a couple people sheltering this ring. Anyway, so I've been going through it. I'm still in the first movie, but I've been watching just as much as I can at once while still really staying relaxed and aware and attentive in my body so I'm like very attentive to my breath and relaxing my belly and finding like the moment and like watching it from inside myself rather than like getting so wrapped up in it which is another thing Eckhart Tolle talks about is television and I really think that that media Lord of the Rings is one of those more intelligent pieces of film media that helps to spark consciousness, but he talks about how a lot of the times when we're watching TV, we sort of become almost hypnotized to the screen and that the the thoughts of the show become our thoughts because our thoughts, we are not producing our own thought anymore. We're just receiving and digesting sort of external thought. And mm-hmm. in that way, we can be really receptive to any advertisement and any you know, thoughts that are happening because they be kind of become our own, which goes again to what kind of media are you consuming? And, and so then are your thoughts really your own is another question that it brings up. And, but yeah, so I've been practicing watching Lord of the Rings very consciously because first of all, it feels already like a conscious film and then to to do it in a place where I can stay relaxed and not be so attached to the outcome, to, you know, their safety, which is really reflected in my own like desire to be safe and not hurt and not
1: mm-hmm. have to go
0: into battle or whatever those things are mm-hmm. that are seizing up inside of me, if you will. But that's fear, that contraction. And so I want to stay open
1: mm. I just feel like there's so much to talk about. But I think that, um, you know, as a student of history, I tend to really love stories that um, I I really love historical fiction. But, you know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, he wrote, he was, you know, a veteran of World War One. So he'd seen this incredible darkness, but he'd also seen the bravery and the good and the light that came out of it. And, you know, right now I'm watching Band of Brothers and how that, um, you know, my sister, my older sister doesn't want to watch it with us because she's like, everything's already so sad in the world. How could you want to watch the sadness? But to me, it's an example of how resilient and incredible <laughs> the human spirit can be. And how even when things seem so dark, there is so much hope for humanity and so much that we've achieved in those moments. And so that's actually something I really love. So this
0: is what you said about Our older sister worried about, you know, how can you watch that when so much is already so destructive? And it reminds me of my take on this part of the book where he's talking about inner space, uh, needing to have just as much value and importance in our inner relationship or inner world as form. And that that's what the phrase this too will pass points to is the impermanence and the, the only thing that can recognize impermanence inside of ourselves is the eternal. So as soon as we recognize impermanence, we become more identified with the eternal aspect of ourself, which is why this too shall pass is such a beautiful phrase. It reminds me of this quote where he says, when the dimension of space is lost or rather not known The things of the world assume an absolute importance, a seriousness and heaviness that in truth they do not have. When the world is not viewed from the perspective of the formless, it becomes a threatening place and ultimately a place of despair. The Old Testament prophet must have felt this when he wrote, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it.
1: Speaking of that, I think... This is something the book helped me with, too, is as part of our work in saving the planet, we have to recognize the problems that are you know, causing pollution, causing animals to die. And I, I spend a lot of time when I can feel separation and unconsciousness and feel resentment is when people aren't willing to open their heart to that pain. But I had this realization that it's not because humans are insensitive. It's because we're so sensitive that as soon as we open our hearts to, you know, elephants dying, ice melting, people suffering, it hurts us. We feel that viscerally. And that's hard. So that closing down is a defense. And can't you have compassion for that? Of course you can, because we know how hard it is. And yet I also recognize that when you open your heart to that pain and you let yourself just sit in that discomfort and feel it fully, then you grow so much stronger and then you can take on even more. Your heart can hold it. And I realize this more and more and more. And I have to remember it because not only does it help me have compassion for people who aren't there yet. But it also reminds me when I feel that instinct to shut it off, you know, uh-huh. that I can't, you know, it's too much, but I can. And and stories like Lord of the Rings and stories like Band of Brothers remind me how much the human spirit can hold and how resilient it can be.
0: So I'm going to read another passage. And he's speaking on that sense of spaciousness, that sense of being, and how when we can go from that place, when we are acting from that place, like that quote you said in the beginning, when when you can bring your consciousness into the moment, you have all of the, the power. And that, you know, when you're in those moments of resentment, which Bonnie and I share too, I have to say, it is because we feel separate from, and we feel we're, we're in the place of that th- fragile, threatening space. And the ironic thing about our podcast name is that the world doesn't need saving, but it's the human species that's on the endangered list right mm-hmm. now. Basically, we are in danger of, of becoming extinct. So it's the humans that need to be saved a little bit. <laughs> but here's the passage. Here is another way of finding inner space. Become conscious of being conscious. Say or think, I am and add nothing to it. Be aware of the stillness that follows, the I am. Sense your presence, the naked, unveiled, unclothed beingness. So that's the vulnerability, right? Naked, unclothed, unveiled, here I am. It is untouched by young or old, rich or poor, good or bad, or any other attributes. It is the spacious womb of all creation, all form. So for me, that is is the spacious womb of all creation. So when we become, when we really let ourselves have a moment of consciousness and just, you know, I am, we become a family inside of ourselves. We unite and we become this family because we all come from the same womb of consciousness, right? And it's this invisible fabric that stitches us all together, where it might seem like you are you and I am me, but really we are one life that is breathing and
1: emanating and moving all the same. We're being knitted together, like what happens in a womb, right, is the baby gets knit together one body that has its arms, which are going to do this in the world and its head is going to do this in the world, its feet and its heart and its stomach. They're all going to have their role to play and they're being programmed for that role in the womb. And at the same time, they're also being programmed to work as one. Mm, and I right. think remembering that we each have our role to play helps us come back to the present moment because it keeps us away from thinking that somebody needs to be conscious now you know, that seed hasn't borne fruit yet, but that's, that's okay. There's intelligent life that is going to come through it at the right moment. And I have absolute faith in that. (sighs) Yeah.
0: And then there's that trust that has to come in. You know, I, in my biology degree, I always thought it was so cool that on the level of perception that we're on right now, it's very sort of quote-unquote, obvious that they're separate things of bed and Madeline and book and Bonnie. But the more you go out, so if you like, if you let your perception be much, much larger and all of a sudden like think airplane view, it's no longer like individuals. It's just a, a river of cars, you know, and it's not one car at a time but it's like this rip this flow of traffic if you will or if you zoom in and in and in and in the the world of our body opens up into like it might seem like there's this blood cell and that blood cell but then even you go into that blood cell and there's there's just these worlds inside of us right and around us and then but we're at this scale cuz if you zoom in or zoom out what you also kind of lose is the the beauty a little bit, like the art, the music. Now we're in this space where there's enough separation that we can receive and perceive these sensory experiences that are so beautiful and have the ability to ignite this presence in us. Like when we can feel a breeze because we are in our sensory bodies and so we can feel a breeze go across or we can hear the rain, or we can hear a beautiful song those those pieces of beauty and of art are meant to help us transcend. but But when we become obsessed with the world of form, they become these like attachment points where we, you know, need the next delicious meal right now, or we need to like satisfy our senses, rather than be in the presence and that spaciousness that can enjoy the beauty of even a sad moment, you know, the beauty of I can't even tell you how many times as a child, like watching a fly, <laughs> this is really ridiculous, but a fly kind of slowly die and I would watch it and like, you know, I would be really emotional about it, but also like there was a deep understanding that it was okay and that this, you know, it's this is how it was meant to be. And mm-hmm. there's just this spaciousness that comes from being like able to hold it. Like you said, my heart can hold it.
1: I think um, what you're talking about touches on something else that's important, which is not only can we sense this world, the way we sense it still has value too in the here and now. And that's where, like, a lot of people might think, well, if, okay, if we're all one and we're all connected, then why do I have individual hopes and dreams and desires and goals for myself? You know, why do I have this compulsion to take action, to take this action or that action or do? right? Because there's doing and being, it's like, we don't want to completely get rid of the doing. And the connection there is that if you have these desires, that is universal intelligence, that is something to value. And that is something to listen to, that's going to point you in one direction or the other, I really care about climate change, it is pointing me in this direction. What you don't want to become overly identified with is the outcome or the end goal that you envision. You know, I'm following this and I'm taking action based on that alignment that I feel, but I'm not or not trying not to be overly concerned with the outcome. It's funny, I was thinking today because I made a marketing strategy for our podcast. As a publicist and a marketer, it's always been you know, the focus is on the end goal and measurement and success and quotas and all of that stuff. But really we're doing this from a place of alignment and we have these visions that we hope for, but we also have faith that it's going to serve its purpose, no matter what that might be, however big or small. And so that's where you let go of the you know identification with success or failure or achieve or not, you know, and you can listen to your individual desires, but still remain in connection with life.
0: Yes, true, true. I loved what you were saying about desires and how our heart speaks to us about what we are meant to be doing in this life, right? Just like when you were saying the the baby being put together in the womb, the arm is going to do this in the world and the legs will do this. And I think that... um Like he says, the untouched part of ourselves, the untouched by young or old, rich or poor. That's the anahata chakra in yoga, in Sanskrit, it's all called anahata, which means unstruck. So that's why we say my heart can hold it all is one of the mantras I say, because it, it can't be hurt. That part of us can't be hurt or touched, struck by the world of form. And that that's where those desires come from. They're birthed out of that spaciousness, right? And this is a tricky thing because you have a vision and you want to see it through. Now, when that can dislodge is if we sort of write down a vision and we have a vision and we stay attached to that. It's sort of boxed in and the moment has moved forward, consciousness expands, it's continuously expanding, the universe is continuously expanding as something science has proven. And so as consciousness expands, your vision should be kind of expanding and morphing and changing along with it. And so to let things fall away that aren't necessary anymore, because maybe at the time there, you know, we needed a human to bring this into the world, but then maybe it needs to change. And so, there's this holding of our vision in a way that allows it to continue to change, which brings it back to faith to me. And that the issues that I've found in doctrine in religion are that they were formed so long ago. And and in some cases are taught very rigidly and need to be allowed to expand and to change and to morph and to be present. And the way that we, can do that as being sensitive to ourselves, like in a, our now moment, our now moment is our position of power, you know, rather than like, you get an email, there's a request for something, it doesn't align with your original vision, but you're feeling a yes for it. You know what I mean? Like you, you're feeling excited about it, but it doesn't really fit into this original vision. So which one do you go with? Right? Right. So you always want to listen now, now, now to what the alignment is to what. And so meditation is a way, the best way that I know to become sensitive to that. Yes, inside of ourselves or the no, or the not right now, Mm. all of those different variances, because that is something that will serve you your whole life to get to where you truly want to go, but you don't even know what it looks like because it's always changing. You know what I
1: mean? I think to bring it full circle, I'm so glad you bring this brought this up, Mads. You know, you were talking about as above, so below, as within, so without that, the pollution aspect. And when people, humans, overly identify with one, one definition of success or achievement... And something happens where the, you've probably heard the phrase, the ends justify the means. So people want to get to that picture and they don't leave space for other ways. And they use the means, they justify the means, which could be polluting the planet or marginalizing individuals or just causing separation between life forms on earth. Then when they get to their destination and it is exactly as they envisioned that success would be, maybe it's an award or it's a set of money or it's a, you know, whatever it is, they're not going to feel great about it because the ends don't justify the means. You have to create, you leave that space for creativity and to expand as the world is expanding and to work with nature, not against it for something that you think is the best. And then also something I want to leave our listeners with is how to practice this in their relationships with other people, right? Because that's how we create more flowers, if you will. And one way to do this, you know, it talks about parenting, for instance, if a child is having an unconscious moment, maybe throwing a tantrum, that in the moment you, you you're probably not the best time to say, you're having an unconscious moment. It's not going to be received. But when that moment passes, if you say to them, what was that that happened yesterday when you were screaming? What did it feel like? If you know, if you could see it, what would it look like? If it had a name, what would it, its name be? Do you think it'll come back? Where did it go? And asking these types of questions to a child, it's an example of how you can prompt someone to examine something an emotional reaction rather than identify with it. So they're basically separating themselves from that reaction. They're not, identif- they're not overly identified with it. So you had this happen in your own parenting with CJ the other day. I'd love if you could tell that story. Yeah, I would love to. Before I do,
0: just one comment on the last thing you said about the success, being attached to success. So I think that people do feel good when they get the award, when they achieve what they meant to, they do feel good, but it's not lasting. So it's not lasting joy. And that's, that's the world of form, right? It brings them a, a fleeting joy because everything is impermanent. So they get the award, but then two days later, their boss is mad at them or they have a new demand and they're on to the next thing, you know? And so then it just keeps getting like pushed down, pushed down. So, yeah. And then, um, yeah, this moment with Clara, she, I have to say, she's very conscious for a little lady. She is. And it's funny you bring this up because when I first read this book, I was working very closely with my mentor who trained me in yoga. I lived and worked in, I didn't live, but I worked in their home office with and I helped with their daughter, who was three at the time. And I remember saying to her when she would be angry, and she'd be saying, I'm angry, I'm angry and I was like, you aren't angry, you have anger, and I would say that to her, but she, like, she would look at me and be like, no, I am angry, and, like, she needed to, like, be able to say, she was like, what are you talking about, so that also didn't totally work, but she was also younger, so Clara is seven, and she came to me, and she was, I was like, what's going on, honey, she was like, I just keep going from happiness to anger and then happiness but then anger again and happiness and anger she was like it just keeps switching back and forth and I was like would you rather be happy than angry and she looked at me a little bit shocked and she was like yeah you know and I think there was an innate feeling of she was bad when she was angry kind of a thing and I was like so what if you just when the anger came what if you just accepted it and I had this little star, this like squishy star that had a little smiley face on it that she had given to me earlier. And I was like, what if this star looked like what your happiness looked like on the inside? So like when you're happy, this star is bright and shining. And your your anger looked like some like gremlin <laughs> little creature. And I was like, what what if that little gremlin just needed to be allowed to be there? He wanted to belong just like your happiness is welcomed in. What if your anger could be welcomed in too? And I was like, what do you think your anger would look like? You know, because I gave her that idea of the gremlin. And then she goes, I think it would look like one of those purple spiky things at the bottom of the sea. So She's talking about sea urchins, right? And she was like, and I think that when the anger comes and it's all spiky is when I'm feeling angry. But then as soon as I bring it and let it come to the party and just let it be, its spikes start to absorb back in and it just becomes this like purple puffball with big eyes. And I was like, yeah, maybe you could just transform it into just another cute little thing by just being with it and letting it be there.
1: In that moment... You were Gandalf with the light shining away the boogies for her, you know, but shining a light on it so that it would dissolve and become just a little purple ball.
0: <laughs> yes. And I'm looking up the poem that I then read her, which is the guest house by Rumi,
1: which I think I read to you. I love it. I love this poem. Yep. This is all what it's about. I just want to say to our listeners that this poem is what we need to do going forward, no matter what happened with this election, which we still don't know, (laughs) that um, I hope you'll carry this example into the future.
0: So this is a a version translated, translated by Coleman Barks and it's by Rumi, originally a Sufi poet. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Yeah,
1: uh, I, I love but. it so much. I want to like frame that poem. Right. I hope that this uh, conversation has inspired some of you guys and perhaps you'll, if you haven't already picked up a new earth, you'll be moved to do so. But either way, we just want you to know that just sitting here and listening to us talk about this and being open to the message is beautiful and means you're doing so much already for the planet for each other and we really appreciate you every single one of you thank you so much for spending this time with us thank you